Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Well, let's listen now carefully to the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die." But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from Romans chapter 5. As we focus our attention upon verse 2, but let's begin with verse 1 as it sets the stage for verse 2 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We saw last time that the Apostle Paul has made a transition indicated by this word therefore at the beginning of chapter 5. And what he's doing is he's transitioning from this defense of the Gospel to now apply the benefits of the Gospel to those who have believed the Gospel. And so he addresses the believing people of God as we and our. He's not simply evangelizing them. He's not simply addressing various errors and objections to the Gospel and seeking to establish that we're all sinners and we can't be justified by our obedience to the law and we need Christ, His death, His resurrection. He's not laboring to prove these things anymore. He's proven them. He's demonstrated them You see at the end of chapter 4 definitively, Christ was raised up because of our justifications. He's already beginning to speak in these terms of we and our. And so he says, therefore, for those of you that have believed this message and that are found righteous in Christ, therefore having been justified by faith, or some translations say being justified by faith, it's really the same difference. He's saying you're now justified. And on the basis of that fact, we who've been justified by faith have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that last time. And we saw that that's the first of several benefits or fruits of justification that Paul is bringing to light in these opening verses of chapter 5. So he begins, we have peace with God. So the first of these benefits of justification is peace with God. 
Next, the one we'll be considering with God's help this morning. Verse 2, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the justified believer has peace with God. And through Christ, that justified believer also has access into this grace in which we stand. And then thirdly, the end of verse 2, he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So thirdly, the believer has hope. The believer rejoices in that hope. The believer has a hope inexpressible and full of glory. Uh, a, a, A hope in which he rejoices. So, He goes on after that to spell out how that hope manifests itself even in the midst of the Christian life in this world. It's not just a hope of heaven, but it's a hope of heaven that manifests itself in a sinful, wicked world of temptation. In a scenario where the believer has remaining sin and is tempted to doubt and disbelieve and disobey the Lord. And so verses 3 and following He says we're able to rejoice in that glory within tribulations. And the tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance character. And character then uh, bring us full circle, reinforces that hope that we have and in which we rejoice. So these are the benefits that Paul is spelling out that flow from our justification. You'll recall, children, in, in your shorter catechism memorization, uh, there's a catechism that we memorize that talks about the benefits that either accompany or flow from our justification, our adoption, and our sanctification. Well, this is the sort of passage that the Westminster Assembly was thinking of. There are these benefits that flow forth, in this case, from our justification. And so this morning we consider the second of these benefits, this access that we have into this grace in which we stand Now, he begins to speak of this second benefit by saying this, through whom also, through whom also. It comes right on the heels of verse 1 where he's reminded us that both justification and all the blessed benefits that flow out of justification come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the language of mediation. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. He's the bridge between God and man. He is the Son of God, the eternal God. He is the man Christ Jesus. He builds a bridge between God and man. He establishes peace and reconciliation. And now we're told that we can walk across that bridge. We can come to the Father through Him. Not merely through conversion, But here you have people that are converted, they are justified, they do have peace with God, and yet through our Lord Jesus Christ, they're now walking across that bridge. They're coming into that fellowship. They're making use of that reconciliation on a daily basis. And so he says, through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In the same way that He's purchased for us the peace, the objective peace, that status of being right with God, having the favor of God, even so, He's purchased a continual access of that peace and that fellowship of God. It's through Him also. So don't think that the mediation of Christ is limited to His accomplishment of salvation at the cross or through the resurrection. The mediation of Christ continues to the application of salvation to every believer. Christ continues as our intercessor, as our high priest. He continues to maintain that reconciliation and fellowship with God Himself. He continues to lavish us with the love and favor of God day by day, as our larger catechism says, notwithstanding our daily failings. That's through the mediation of Christ. It's through Him, not just because of something He did, but by way of His ongoing ministry. Through Him. Through Him also. And that word also is so pregnant with meaning because you see in these verses that we've read in verses 1-11 through 
how the Apostle Paul is continuously adding grace upon grace upon grace, benefit upon benefit upon benefit. There are so many benefits of salvation that in Psalm 103, uh, the, the psalmist has to remind himself not to forget them all. There's such a long list of them. Uh, he, he needs to write them down. He needs to memorize them. Uh, you go to Psalm 103, which uh, we sang before the service here in our pre-service psalm. Uh, he begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. You see, it's through Christ that we have peace with God. Through Christ we're justified. And we have peace with God. And through Him also, we have access into this grace in which we stand. And through Him also we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And through Him also we can rejoice even in tribulation. And through Him also we can experience the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. So on and so forth. You can, you can look at those verses in our text. But forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. And that's not only speaking of the world to come when we have perfect bodies as believers having been raised up in our incorruptible humanity, our glorified humanity where there's no sickness whatsoever. Uh, but also you see that even this past week. The Lord is gracious. We pray for uh, little Minsoul in his surgery and the Lord's been gracious over many years to answer those prayers and to bring healing in response to the prayers of His people. He heals our diseases. Uh, and the diseases He doesn't heal bring us to heaven. They bring us to glory. So, in one sense, it's our gain. To die is gain. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And you could go on in that beautiful psalm. It's not difficult not to forget. There's so many of them. There's so many of these blessings. And we're reminded of that. Through whom also? Uh, the, the gracious thoughts, the psalmist says, the gracious thoughts of God toward me are more than the hairs of my head. They're innumerable. His many gracious thoughts, His many benefits. And you can see that language emphasized. Verse 3, Paul says, and not only that. So he says, we've got this, we've got that, we've got the other. Not only that, there's more. Verse 9, much more than. He's building on this. Verse 10, uh, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. He says, you think God was gracious to you prior to your conversion? Much more now, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So the best is yet to come. Verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so you see, the Gospel is a message of good news. It's, it's an encouraging message. It's great news. It's wonderful news. And it just keeps getting better. The more you continue into this epistle to the Romans, those who have taken in the bad news those who have taken it to heart and repented and confessed their sins and turned to Christ, now it's as if the, the, the gates of the kingdom are opened and we're able to see more and more and more. Not only this, not only that, much more. All of His gracious benefits. John 1.16 says that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us grace upon grace. Grace for grace. God gives us grace in the Gospel, but we don't have grace to believe it. We reject it as depraved sinners. But He gives us grace so that we can receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that in Christ, in the heavenly places, is laid up for us as believers all spiritual blessings. John 10 tells us that Christ, our Good Shepherd, gives to us an abundant life. An abundant life. Grace upon grace. Benefit upon benefit. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall lack 
for nothing. My cup shall be running over. Goodness and mercy shall be chasing me down all the days of my life. And in some sense, this abundance of grace that we find Paul even just beginning to unwrap the present, unwrap the gift of eternal life here in chapter 5, you can see how it flows from what we talked about last time, peace with God. Because that word peace in Hebrew, which would have been very much significant in the mind of the Apostle Paul, who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, that word peace or shalom in Hebrew gives translators fits. And no doubt it gives fits to those who are trying to translate uh, our psalm selections, right? Because the word peace in Hebrew, shalom, can mean so many things. You go to Psalm 72 and it speaks of peace and prosperity and thriving and flourishing. And in many cases, it's just the same word, shalom, translated in different ways, in different verses, to try to bring out the fullness of the blessed abundance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It means prosperity, it means health, it means well-being. It can mean friendship and favor, not just a ceasefire, not just an end to the conflict, but a flourishing friendship, relationship, yielding prosperity and well-being. And so grace upon grace, through whom also this, then that, much more, and not only that, but the next thing. It's, it's a beautiful picture. But he, he focuses then our attention upon this next blessing. We have access. Through Christ, we have access. And this is the perfect tense. Uh, well, it's the perfect tense, but it's also the perfect tense to communicate what Paul is saying here because he's saying, as the ESV puts it, we have obtained access. Right? The perfect tense indicates a past action with ongoing results. And so Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished. And he used the perfect tense, which means that it's perfectly finished. That it, it now has been finished and it stands finished. That's the idea of the perfect tense. And so he says here, we have been granted access, we have obtained access through Christ, and now we have access. That access stands open and available to us. Not just we have it, you know, uh, we have it, we have it not, He loves me, He loves me not, no. We have obtained, definitively obtained that access. It is now ours. By right and privilege as the children of God, through Jesus Christ. We've obtained it. Now, access here refers to the freedom to draw near. If you work for the government, perhaps, you get a little swipe card and uh, you have access. You have clearance to go to certain buildings, certain places. You have clearance to look at certain documents. Uh, Perhaps you have certain clearance to look at classified documents and things of this sort. You have access to these things. You get a password so that you can access your account. Uh, For instance, at the bank or with your email account or something like that. It's clearance. It's entrance. It's freedom to to come near, to draw near in this case. Freedom to draw near to God. Freedom to enter into His presence. It's not just that the door's unlocked, but it's actually... a a sign that says welcome into the presence of God. You have that welcome access into God's presence. And you think of uh, how far different it is for the rulers of this world. Uh, Think of in the book of Esther, King Artaxerxes, where even his own wife, to enter into his presence in the throne room, had to risk her own life. And, And And there was the golden scepter. And if he raised it, then she was okay and she had access. But if he didn't raise it, if he was not pleased, if he was not wanting to talk to her, she could lose her life. And and how much fear and anxiety and trepidation must any of his subjects, much less his own wives, had to come into his presence in that situation. Many of them probably simply would remain at a distance to avoid that type of danger and anxiety. But... Here, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jehovah, 
the God, the judge, the king of all the earth is saying, I raise my scepter and you may come, you may draw near. In fact, you are commanded. You're welcome. You have access, but you're commanded. I'm summoning you. Gather together those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Psalm 50. Come into my presence. Draw near. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And through Christ, we have access to draw near. And you see this unfolding throughout the pages of Scripture. This idea of access. Adam and Eve were made and placed in the garden and they had access to that beautiful fellowship with God. They walked with God. But after the fall, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden and there was an angel placed at the gateway to the garden with a flaming sword that would threaten anyone who would try to come into that holy place of fellowship. The, the sword threatened them. The sword of God's judgment and justice against human sin denied them access. Now, of course, we do see that uh, Adam and Eve and their family probably lived nearby to, to the garden. They were pushed out, but they were probably in the general vicinity. And they would offer sacrifices to God. And many scholars believe that they would actually come near to where that flaming sword was and that they, they would offer sacrifices to God in, in much the same way that the people of Israel would come near the temple or the tabernacle that they couldn't enter because of God's holiness, but they would sacrifice nearby. Whether that's the case, you can at least see that, that this imagery is unfolding within the pages of Scripture. And so God's people don't have access to that garden temple. But then eventually under Moses, God builds a tabernacle for His holy presence and eventually a temple. And we think of it as a negative thing that only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. But that's better than what Adam and his descendants had. They couldn't go into the, the garden temple at all. Uh, so under the Old Testament, there's an increase of privilege and grace. There's a sinful human being who's set apart and enabled to go in to that most holy presence of God in the most holy place once a year compared to what was there before. That's a great increase. Uh, but we come to the New Testament. We see that when Christ died on the cross that the temple curtain was torn. The veil was rent asunder from top to bottom and a new and living way, a new and living access into the presence of God was opened for us. And in the New Testament, in terms of our outward privilege, uh, coming to the Lord's table, which is in some sense, the holy of holies of the New Testament in terms of outward ordinances, all of God's professing people come to that table. All of God's professing people come into His holy presence to, as it were, commune with Christ. His real presence, His body, His blood, spiritually, by faith, we have access. And this language is used in uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. In fact, he, he emphasizes this point time and time again in that epistle. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit to the Father. So you see there, the peace of the Gospel now paves the way for access through Him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. In chapter 3, verse 12 of Ephesians, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. You can see these parallel passages. Obviously, Paul wrote Romans, Paul wrote Ephesians, and he's, if you put these two together, he's saying, that through Christ, whether we're Jew or Gentile, that as believers, we have access to the Father. And we have access to the Father by one Spirit, through faith in Christ. And as a result of what Christ has done for us, we have access that, that is characterized by boldness and confidence. So we're not tiptoeing into the presence of God. 
We're not afraid of God's wrath and judgment. He has saved us from it through Christ. We come boldly and confidently into the presence of God. That's the access that Christ has purchased for us. And in our call to worship, you see this emphasized as well. If you can look at your bulletin there, Hebrews 10.19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So, His body was broken and torn asunder as it were. And even so, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom by God Himself. And it opened away. Through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So again, boldness, confidence, assurance. Now we take these things lightly, we can talk about these things, but you know as well as I do that when you come before the Lord seriously, genuinely, sincerely, that's not always an easy thing to have. When you sense the burden of your sin and you know you've just done something wrong and you know, yes, I need to confess it to the, to the Lord, and you come before Him immediately, the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, even your own conscience and unbelief, begins attacking your sincerity and saying, well, you're not truly sorry. You're just going through the motions. God doesn't care. God's not going to listen to you. God is a God of holiness and justice, and your confession is a joke, and you better just stay at a distance from God. Those promises of access and assurance are not for you. They're for somebody else, somebody who's more godly, somebody whose repentance is more robust and sincere, somebody whose confession is more full-fledged and from the heart, somebody else, somebody out there, some hypothetical saint, but not for you. Not for you. And, and the Gospel says nothing could be further from the truth. Draw near. Draw near. Now, now you may say, what does it mean to draw near with boldness? To draw near with confidence. To draw near with full assurance of faith. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're dancing into the presence of God having sinned against Him flagrantly? No, it does not mean that. That's the kind of uh, straw man that the devil loves to, to erect by way of false preachers and teachers throughout the land. But the fact of the matter is, to come into God's presence boldly, with confidence, with assurance, is simply to come knowing that God will accept you. you. You look at Psalm 51. David's not dancing and prancing and, 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 and almost saying, Lord, I thank you for my sin because it humbled me and made me... No, you, you hear people say things like this, sadly. I hope you don't, but I have. And... It's not like that. It's, it's a humble boldness. It's a humble assurance. It's a humble confidence. Let me illustrate this from Psalm 51, actually. Where do we see David's confidence in Psalm 51? I think we see it toward the end. Verse 17. Psalm 51 verse 17. I think we see something of David's confidence. Now again, you look at the whole psalm. David has humbled himself before the Lord. He's crying out for mercy. His argument for God's acceptance is not based on anything he has done or any humility on his part. So let's set that straight. He's simply saying, verse 1, "...have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness." according to the multitude of your tender mercies. He's saying, all I'm bringing to the table is my sin, but Lord, you're merciful. That's who you are. And that's what you've promised in your covenant. So cleanse me, sprinkle me, wash me as white as snow. That's what he's saying. Okay? He says actually in verse 12, restore my joy. So he's not even feeling joyful at this particular moment. He's burdened by his sin. 
So don't expect that you come into the presence of God with sins to confess and you're immediately going to be on cloud nine on the mountaintop. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, it's often not the case. Because God uses that sense, that burden of sin and guilt in a good way. He uses it to humble us, to call out for His mercy, to realize how much we need His mercy. And to ask Him to remove the burden. To ask Him to restore the joy. Okay, so all that being the case, back to verses 16 and 17. He says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. He's saying there's nothing I can do even by way of worshiping you according to your prescribed ordinances in the Old Testament. There's nothing I can do outwardly to obtain your favor and your blessing and your acceptance. But look where his confidence lies. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, here's the confidence. These, O God, you will not despise. There's his confidence. That's one of the boldest things you could possibly say for David having committed murder and adultery, having defiled the reputation of God and his people. He comes in the presence of God, confessing his sin, claiming God's free grace and mercy. And he says, there's nothing I'm doing now or that I could possibly do to obtain that favor and that forgiveness and that acceptance. But I know that you will not despise what I'm doing. I know that you will not consider it a small thing. That's what it means to despise. I know that it seems small to me. It seems small as the devil's accusing me. And as I examine myself under the microscope, I feel small. In a sense, I am small. But to you, it's not a small thing. To you, O Lord, it is significant. And you will not overlook it. You will not despise it. You will not reject me. That's boldness. That's confidence. That's assurance. It's not foolishness and frivolity and, and taking sin as if, it's, if, as if it's a light and frivolous thing. No, no. But it's confidence of the greatest and most significant kind. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And so he actually uses, it's amazing, uh, if you were a, a wrestler, you know, you have certain moves where you can reverse, what's, you know, the reversal move. Uh, you're about to be pinned down by the devil and by doubt and unbelief, and boom, David pulls a reversal here and, and pins his doubts to the mat because he, he actually uses his brokenness, his sense of unworthiness, he uses his utter burden of sinfulness and guilt, he uses it to reverse the situation. He says, well, Lord, if I'm broken by my sin, if I'm contrite, then Lord, I know that You will not despise me. As Jesus says with the penitent publican at the temple who says, nothing more, nothing less than God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus describes His saving, justifying faith by which He gained access to God's presence, even at a distance at the temple. He describes that by saying, those who humble themselves will be exalted. So David's saying, the fact that I'm so pathetic and I know it, demonstrates, O Lord, the work that You're doing in my heart. Demonstrates that You will not despise what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how I'm entering into Your presence here. You won't despise it. That's confidence, my friends. And it's not confidence, not David's confidence in his humility. You see, this can be another problem where we say, okay, well then, I don't feel humble. I don't feel humble enough. I don't think I'm bowed down low enough. But you see, again, easily reversible. Do you sense that you're not humble enough? Are you sick and tired of your pride? Do you recognize that you're nowhere near as humble and repentant as you ought to be? Are you burdened by that? Will you confess that to the Lord? You see, even in that, we can say, These, O God, You will not despise. Access. We have it. We have obtained it. How do we make use of it? 
what's the point of saying we have it if we don't even know what it actually is and how to make use of it? Well, we make use of it by way of the means of grace. We have access into the presence of God in public, private, and family worship. And by private worship, I'm not limiting it to your personal devotional time. I'm saying your communion with God throughout the day, through meditation, through spontaneous prayer. So I'm not seeking to have a sort of rigid limitation on our mystical union and communion with Christ. But, but it's through the means of grace. Through the means of grace, privately, through the word and prayer, and through the ongoing effect of that in your daily life. That's how we commune. That's how we come before the Lord each day. I hope you're coming before the Lord each morning in the Word and prayer to begin your day with communion and entrance into this fellowship that you've been granted access to. In family worship, you gather together as husband and wife. You gather together if God's given you children, you include them as well. And you have family worship through the Word, prayer, praise, you're communing with God, you're entering into fellowship. Understand, whenever you have family worship, the point is for everybody involved to enter into the presence of God in a unique way during that period of time and to hear His voice in the Word and to cry out to Him in prayer, drawing near to Him and to praise His name. Also in public worship, we, we gather into the presence of God that through His ordinances, we may not only glorify Him, but that we may experience Him and dwell in the midst of His holy presence. And especially we see the the climax, the apex of that in the Lord's Supper. So we need to take these things seriously. Uh, We have access. Let's use that access. Let's, Let's mark it out and plan out our days and our weeks and our months and our years based upon these means of accessing the presence of God. And when we do so, let's be ready. When, when we begin family worship in prayer, let's remind ourselves and our family of these truths, of our sin and of Christ's work of redemption and of the access and the peace of God and the acceptance and the assurance and the boldness that we have as we enter into His presence. Let's remind ourselves of these things. Now, you you ask the question, well, is this access unique to the New Testament? And there are things we've already mentioned about the the contrast in terms of the outward ordinances of the Old Testament with the priest entering in once a year into the most holy place, and only the priests themselves could enter in even to the holy place of the tabernacle or the temple, much less the most holy place. And in the New Testament, all of God's professing people come to the Lord's table. And so you can see, at least in the outward ordinances, there's an increased privilege. Hebrews 9, verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. And it goes on to say, verse 8, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. And for that reason, you can look at our... Uh, call to worship as well, kind of addresses those issues as we saw. There are people that claim that in the Old Testament, the saints of God did not have access to God. Uh, In some sense, at all in in terms of what we're talking about here. That it's only New Testament believers that, for instance, possess the Holy Spirit of God within them. Or that have this intimate access to God in worship or in private. Because they say the the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. And they speculate that the Old Testament saints were in the bosom of Abraham, not in heaven when they died. They went to the bosom of Abraham, whatever that may mean to them, But because uh, Abraham was in heaven. So if they're in the bosom of Abraham, they're in heaven. But the point is they, they, they buy into some of these Roman Catholic dogmas that talk about uh, limbo for the Old Testament saints rather than heaven. But this is not telling us anything of the sort. What it's saying is that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. In other words, the work of Christ had not yet come. It's not as though the Old Testament saints lacked the basic benefits of salvation. Otherwise, they'd actually be in hell. 
not in limbo. But the fact is that the way into the holiest of all, in other words, the work of Christ, was not yet manifest. And so they had the Old Testament promises and prophecies, but those things had not yet come to pass. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have the epistles of Paul to explain and expound the reality of that new and living way. So it's a matter of degrees. They had less knowledge, and therefore, there was something of a glass ceiling on their Christian experience. Uh, But at the same time, while we can acknowledge that, the Old Testament saints, no doubt, had the same access in principle as what we have. I mean, you think of Enoch walking with God. Anyone in here think they have a more intimate relationship with God than Enoch did? How about Noah who walked with God? How about Abraham who was the friend of God? How about Moses to whom God spoke as one man speaks to his friend? Uh, I don't think we're going to be raising our hand and saying, well, I have a closer relationship with God than some of these Old Testament saints. So understand in principle they had the same access by faith. And that's the key here. It's by faith. The same faith that Paul says was in Abraham. Uh, And you, you can't you can't sing the Psalms or read the Psalms without seeing Psalm 27 that David was longing to experience and no doubt did experience gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in his holy temple. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in those Old Testament ordinances. We saw recently in our uh, August communion, Psalm 91, that the believer in the Old Testament, even when most likely Moses is writing the lyrics of that psalm that the believer dwells in the secret place of the Almighty under the shadow of His wings. We sing in Psalm 65, verse 4, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. So in principle, they had it. They had it by faith, and we have it. We have a greater potential than they did, and yet you see some of these saints far outstrip any of our spirituality. And yet we do have that greater access by way of degrees. In the New Testament, the fact that Christ has now come gives us greater assurance of the reality of that path that He paved for us into God's presence. The fact that He has already declared it is finished, that the payment has been made, that the Spirit's been poured out in greater measure. The Spirit of adoption who bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. All of these things increase Christian assurance and confidence in approaching the throne of grace boldly. And we ought to be mindful of that. Now it is by faith And we said in the cross-references in Ephesians 2.18 and Ephesians 3.12 that Paul there says that it's by the Spirit and then he says it's by faith. And I think we're to understand these two things in tandem. That when Paul says that we have access by faith into this grace, What he's saying is we've been justified by faith as an empty hand to receive the righteousness of Christ. But it's now by the eyes of faith that we perceive the grace into which we have access and in which we stand. In other words, it's by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.18, and it's by faith, Ephesians 3.12. So when he says by faith in Romans 5.2, he's saying by that spiritual eye of faith. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, enables us to perceive by faith, to know by faith what Hebrews 11.6 tells us, that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He goes on in that chapter to speak of those who saw Him who's invisible who laid eyes on the reward. For us to access this grace in which we stand, we need to exercise our faith. We need to see, in other words, know for certain and see the reality 
of the grace of God toward us in Christ Jesus. This Spirit-wrought eye of faith needs to be open and this is indispensable. If we don't believe that God is seeing and perceiving the invisible God, and if we are not confident that He will reward those who diligently seek Him, then it's all in vain. And we're like James says, those who ask for things in prayer in unbelief. We're double-minded, we're tossed about. But Paul's saying we need faith. We need the eyes of faith. Specifically, what do we need to believe? We need to believe, as I said, that God rewards those who diligently seek Him. In other words, we need to perceive this grace. If we're going to access this grace in which we stand, we need to believe the grace. We need to perceive the grace. What is the grace? Well, we often think of grace as God's gift toward us. And yes, the gift of salvation is gracious. He freely gives us all that we need for life and godliness. That's an aspect of grace. But fundamentally, the gifts of God's grace flow out of God's favorable disposition towards us. So when we see the word grace, we need to be very careful that we understand so many instances in the New Testament, it's meant not to convey the thing God gives, but something about the God who gives the gift. God's favorable disposition towards us, which is the source of all His gifts and ultimately the greatest gift of all, that He lovingly accepts us that He shows us goodwill and good intentions, that He cares for us, He has compassion towards us, He desires our well-being. He doesn't flatter us, He's not codependent, okay? But He favors us. It's not something we've merited, it's unmerited favor, but it's favor. And it does not change, it does not fluctuate. He knows the plans He has for us, to bless us, to save us, to prosper us, to give us hope in a future. And it's the cure for backsliding that we would recognize this. Recognize that God is for us and not against us. This is what draws the prayerless Christian to return to his knees in prayer. To know God loves him. Many are his gracious thoughts toward me. He loves me. He understands me. He forgives me. He cleanses me. He receives and accepts me. And he has promise to bless me and prosper me. This we need by faith, a confidence and assurance of this favorable disposition of God towards us. I mentioned backsliding. You see this at the end of Hosea. What is it that draws God's people out of backsliding? Hosea 14.4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him into this grace, into this grace in closing in which we stand. Boldness. We stand in this grace. We stand by faith. We, we access this grace and we're not, again, tiptoeing. We're not faltering. We're standing in the presence of God. Boldness before Almighty God. O oh Lord, if You should mark iniquity, who could stand? But there's forgiveness that You may be feared, that God's people may reverently stand in the judgment. The ungodly will not stand in the judgment. Psalm 1.5 But the righteous will stand in the presence of God. You know that uh, adulteress, the Pharisees brought to Jesus and, and they wanted Him to, to stone her or to command her to be stoned for her adultery. And so much more could be said here. But the beauty of this passage is that after Jesus brings a word of conviction to all of these conceited, self-righteous Pharisees and they scatter, it says that this woman was still standing before Jesus. All the rest had left. All the rest had been convicted. They could not stand before the judge of all the earth. She stood there. That's the boldness of saving faith. That's the boldness to stand before Christ and yes, go and sin no more, but she had boldness before God. We have boldness to access His throne. We know it's a throne not of judgment for us, but a throne of grace. 
we also stand boldly in prayer. As I just mentioned, Hebrews 4.16. We come boldly to the throne of grace knowing that we'll receive help in time of need. Thirdly, we stand in boldness before men. What is it that caused Elijah to boldly proclaim the truth in the face of King Ahab and 800 prophets? We're told even when Elijah was introduced on the scene, 1 Kings 17.1, that Elijah stood before the Lord. He accessed this grace. He stood before the Lord. He called upon the Lord. He served the Lord. And therefore, he stood boldly before the world before the enemies of God. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us that when we gird ourselves through prayer and supplication, that we are equipped and enabled in the evil day to stand. To stand. Uh, It's a sad thing when those who profess the name of Christ do not stand for His truth. Proverbs 25, 26, a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. If you're going to stand, it's going to be by standing before the Lord boldly in prayer, in faith, believing in His favorable disposition towards you. Well, in application, very briefly, I would simply say, believe this. If you believe this, it will, I don't even have to tell you to pray. I don't even have to tell you to have family worship. I don't even have to tell you to come to church tonight or to come to the Lord's table when when that's spread out before us. I don't have to tell you that because if you believe this, you'll be drawn irresistibly to pray, to worship, to access the grace in which you stand. And if you don't believe this, no amount of arm twisting from me is going to change it. So let's believe this and let the Spirit transform our perspective. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us the contrite and lowly and broken spirit that you will not despise. Give us confidence that those who seek you diligently will be rewarded. Draw us into the secret place. Draw us into your presence that we may find help in time of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.